You're listening to Pushing Borders, the event that brings together the most and least heard voices in skateboarding. This panel discussion was recorded live at Pushing Borders Malmo in 2019. For more talks, head to pushingborders.com and follow us in all the usual places for updates. The next uh, talk, stay poor, stay cool, stay cool, stay poor. The debate will continue right now. Um, so, please, uh, let's welcome our first panellist. Uh, he's the owner of London's premier online skate shop, The Palomino, specialising in independent brands. Please welcome Nick Sherratt. Uh, next up, uh, you'll know him from the Blueprint Classics, uh, Waiting for the World, first broadcast, Lost and Found. He went on to start Isle with Nick Jensen and now works as team manager for Adidas. Please give it up for Paul Shire. Kim is the founder of Mafia TV, the first digital platform dedicated to women's action sports and co-founder of the Women's Skateboarding Alliance, a management consulting, uh, consulting sporting agency. Please give it up for Kim Woozy. And our next speaker is a former professional skateboarder who co-founded 411 Video Magazine. He also uh, is the co-creator of Inner Skate Festival and the CEO of USA Skateboarding. Give it up for Josh Friedberg. Next up, Claire is a writer from France, now based in the UK, whose pieces have appeared in court in the crossfire. She's now working on a new magazine entitled Two Set. Please give it up for Claire Allium. And finally, your chair, an associate professor at Roosevelt University in Chicago, whose essays have been published in numerous journals and skate mags. He also co-hosts the Vent City podcast. Please welcome Professor Kyle Beachy and your panel. Thank you. Associate professor. It means less than. Uh, this is, uh, hello, welcome. This, this, uh, this is exceptional. The view up here actually is very, very good. Um, it is a tremendous honor to be here, a tremendous honor to be sitting on the stage with uh, <laughs> these five people. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to do my best. Um, I, I, I do think that um, everyone here can uh, certainly um, benefit from one more boisterous, and fully bodied uh, showing of gratitude for the six people who have spent 11 tireless months making all of this happen. Um, can we please recognize Tom, Theo, Sonder, Charlie, Stuart, and Osh?
Uh, and of course, uh, Phil, who has, uh, I think, handled this very well. Phil? And of course, John and Gustav um, for this incredible hosting. And Gustav's boss, who I met, who's a very, very nice woman. Uh, and then, of course, all of you. Some of you, I know for a fact, have uh, paid a lot of money to come here, have flown um, from such far-flung and unknown regions as St. Louis, Missouri, <laughs> um, and elsewhere. Uh, so uh, one more round of applause for everyone here who's around you. Yeah. And all the volunteers who have made everything happen. So please, once more for the volunteers. Okay, so I think I owe you um, a little bit of an explanation of why exactly I get to sit up here and talk to um, people who deserve to be up here. My name is Kyle Beachy, um, and I am a novelist and a professor of literature and creative writing, neither of which professions have anything at all to do with the skateboarding industry. I've never wanted to be part of the skateboarding industry. I never made a stab at the skateboarding industry. I maxed out at like shop sponsor, and even then I think it was um, kind of out of pity. Um, but about seven or eight years ago, I began writing articles about skateboarding because I had been doing it for a very long time and also because I was thinking about it all the time because I was trying to write a novel that in some way captured the spirit of what skateboarding is. At first, I wrote about a few skaters who struck me as particularly important. Then I wrote about Nike's insidious and totally obvious strategy to work their way into skateboarding market that had already rebuffed them twice and why it was going to succeed. Last year, I wrote an article that began with some, some old, though no less despicable, comments from a white California skateboard legend that were unearthed in the wake of a late career Thrasher cover and his final part in a Converse video. But the comments he made weren't surprising given American racial dynamics, and I wasn't particularly interested in canceling or doing any harm to the man himself. Really, what I wrote about was my profound disappointment in the way that the US skateboarding industry responded to these comments with just overwhelming silence. What the incident made clear was that the industry as it stood did not have the infrastructure in place to adequately address the racism, misogyny, and homophobia that have always lurked in the back corners of skateboarding and often in plain sight. When I was young, before I understood myself or my body, skateboarding taught me what it means to long, to yearn, to fantasize. Skateboarding opened me to longing even before it was complicated by adolescence and sexual desire. I longed for a place I had never been and worshipped a handful of just impossibly world-historically cool young men that I would never meet. I, I, I presumed I would never meet. And this longing changed but lingered into adulthood. I recall a certain period of weeks in 2002 or 2003 when I had a recurring dream of PJ Ladd. <laughs> in these dreams, he was just nearby. He was wearing an S hoodie and baggy denim and his excels, and we weren't even skating. 
we were just kicking it. <laughs> like in a basement or on a porch. And each, meaning, each morning I would wake to the terrible, sudden realization that it was just a dream and PJ was not actually my homie at all. <laughs> and so this is what the skate industry did to me. It shaped my dreams. It was the algorithm of my desires and it was just profoundly instrumental in the way that I conceptualize my identity. It's given me fashion, music, jokes. And for me and a lot of other people who look like me, skating has been by far the most culturally interesting thing about us. Ever since I achieved the slightest modicum of self-awareness, self-actualization, and more recently actively sought out various forms of therapies to assist me with mental and emotional health, I have always leaned upon skateboarding as a foundational text of my personal narrative. I have an impossible goal right now, and it's to have this panel serve as a kind of culmination to this week's wildly interesting and important conversations. Um, but I also know that in a, will, in a way, it has to be, it will be, um, and here's, why, here's what I mean by that. Much of this conference has been about the different ways that skateboarding creates or facilitates meaning. What skateboarding means for individuals like me and many other individuals who are totally unlike me. What it means for cities, for places, for history itself. Also, this week, we've heard people speak of strategies for leveraging the practice of skateboarding, the activity of skateboarding, leveraging it into other uses, education, activism, therapy. And we've discussed difficult realities about who gets to chronicle skateboarding and tell its stories. We've confronted the broader social truths of power disparities and many assorted forms of imbalances and injustices. We've brushed against the sacred, and we've applauded latecomers to the activity, and we've listened to the voices of people who we might otherwise assume are simply grateful for Western help. But just as all questions of contemporary suffering are ultimately questions of capitalism, all of these things we've discussed about skateboarding, its promise, its utility, its fundamental weirdness and unquantifiability, all of these are at core dependent on the production, distribution, and marketing of skateboard products. And as we here go about our work to both understand and redefine the ways that skateboarding matters, we absolutely must keep in mind the relationship between our ideas, our noble practices, and the economic realities of our beloved little toy. And so, here we have a cross-section of the contemporary skateboard industry. They, like us, have witnessed the conversations this week. Paul got to go see Tyshawn skate in between. Who, like us, are skaters? Who, like us, love skateboarding? And who, perhaps more and perhaps less than us, play a role in writing skateboarding's ongoing narrative? Okay, so now we're going to have a conversation which is as close as we humans can get to the divine. Um, I hope to move this conversation through four main parts. I've learned two things as a college professor. One of them is don't wear shirts that reveal armpit sweat. <laughs> Uh, the other thing I've learned is that planning a conversation is often total folly. Um, but I, I believe that if all goes well, we will move through these four kind of steps. We're going to start with questions about the word core and what, if anything, that word means today in 2019. Then, ideally, we'll discuss, skate, discuss skateboarding's growth and exposure in new parts of the world and touch on questions of gatekeeping. 
Soon after that, in theory, we'll address what this growth means to people who ride skateboards seriously, including questions about ethical treatments and practices and rights. And then we'll discuss skateboarding's future in a world teetering on the brink of apocalypse. So, to utter those famous perfect words, let's do this. All right, friends. Um, what, what I would like you to do, uh, since I spoke a little bit about what I saw as a young person in the middle of uh, the United States and what it kind of did to me, I wonder if by way of introduction, um, we could just take a turn um, introducing yourself by saying kind of what you saw of the industry. What was it about the industry that you saw that made you want to go into it? How did you get into it? And then finally, what is your exact role now? How do you see yourself within the industry? So what did you see? Why did you want to go there and how'd you do it? And finally, where exactly are you in the industry? Does that make sense? Cool, I'll shut up. Who would like to go first? I'll go first. boy. Um, so my entry into the skateboarding industry was um, through noticing uh, a gap in the market. But it wasn't a gap in the market that I wanted to fill purely out of profit. It was a gap in the market to kind of save me money, basically. So I was buying a DVD from Japan. I was buying a T-shirt from Sweden, um, from little companies that had no um, representation in the UK. So the UK has really tight uh, restrictions on import duty and tax. And so if you spend anything more than 15 pounds, you have to pay the VAT on it, you pay import duty on it if it's due, and then you also pay an extra eight pounds for the privilege of Royal Mail charging you the first two. Um, so you might buy a 10 pound DVD from America, but you, you pay 15 pounds extra on top with, yeah, this duty tax shipping. And I moaned about this all the time, and my flatmate at the time was like, well, why don't you just do it? I was always like, why is no one selling this? Dan, my flatmate, said, just do it. And around that same time, I read uh, an interview with Lev from Palace. And he said that one of the reasons, or like the business model that Palace was started on, was like your mate that isn't really a drug dealer, but he buys, he buys all the weed and then he sells a little bit to his friends and then his, his weed is free. Um, so I thought, well, I can apply that to skateboard DVDs. I can, <laughs> I can buy six imports, six DVDs, and the profit that I make on the five that I sell means that the, the one I get is free. Um, so so that, was, that was the reason it was started. I, I would be lying if from the word go, I didn't hope, well, maybe this could turn into my full-time job and then I can quit the job that I hate that makes me unhappy day in, day out. And thankfully that did happen. Um, I hear a lot of people seem to start businesses and say, oh, we never really hoped it would turn into, a, turn into our job. Well, I, I wanted it to be my job. Um, and now thankfully it is. Um, but the, the place, I think that another one of those questions was, where do you see yourself in the... Um, I, I know people that know me know that I'm not an arrogant person, but this, I worry that this comes across as arrogance. But 
I think that now Palomino serves an, an important place in the skateboard industry because while I don't have a physical shop and I don't get to form that community, which I am eternally sad about, but I can't afford to have a physical shop. It's, it's a nail in the coffin anyway, let alone selling DVDs and zines and books. Um, but it's, a community has formed around it because, because people that are as nerdy and geeky about skateboard books and DVDs and little companies as I am are slowly finding my shop and we form a little community around it. Um, but I see myself right at the bottom of the skateboard industry. Like, I'm, I owe the taxman thousands of pounds. I, I barely scrape by. Um, and now with the, the, last, um, the last talk in mind, like, now how do, we, how do we rate our place in the skateboard industry a lot of the time? Followers. I, have, I don't even have 6,000 followers on the shop. Uh, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm so poor, I think, is because I'm only talking to... 5,000 people every time I'd say anything that I've gotten. It's really hard to get that, get that message out there. So, yeah, I'm at, I'm at the bottom. Thank you, Nick. Claire. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me on this panel. Um, so, really briefly, I've been skateboarding about um, nearly 20 years. Um, so, I've been around. And I suppose my first exposure to the industry was... Um, probably as a sponsored skater quite early on in my skateboard journey because, you know, there were five girls and I could boneless. Um, so, um, so I suppose that was the first, um, first sort of introduction um, early on in my skate journey, probably skateboard journey than, you know, probably a guy would have had. Um, and then just kind of skating, going a lot to competitions, not because we're super competitive, but because that's, that's how I met not only the first women skaters, but also the first other skaters that weren't, you know, the three guys that I skated um, with uh, daily. Um, Travelled around a lot, um, was kind of really lucky to travel around with my friends to different places, even when I was super young, in a quite irresponsible way, frankly, but anyway. Um, and then um, when I was 19, I set up my little company, which was a... Um, communication agency specialised in skateboarding. I mean, I kind of widened it out to urban sports, but yeah, pretty much skateboarding. Um, so I was consulting um, with mainly um, local government at the time uh, and designers and architects, and I was uh, working around the integration of uh, skateboarding in the city in terms of sustainable development and that kind of stuff. Um, and then I just got a normal job, um, and that's what, what I do now, but what I've done carried on since then is kind of writing and I had a zine called Peppermint and um, I write bits and bobs or whatever that sometimes get published uh, and I'm writing, working on new stuff now. So I would say I'm kind of not in the industry but actually I've got quite a wide view. I think we're all in the industry. Um, so uh, I guess as a commentator of some sort or just someone who's been around for a little while. Thank you. <clears throat> Josh? Um, I'll take it back to my first exposure to real skateboarding because I think it's a common experience that a lot of us had. Um, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, and um, when I was 13, um, it was this interesting confluence of three major things that made skateboarding my world. Uh, back to the Future came out in 1985, um, and Michael J. Fox getting behind a car making sparks was amazing. Um, 
and then my friend uh, Mitch German went to Florida and came home with a Gons board and the future primitive video from Pal, and we put the video in, and my head exploded. Like I, I had no idea what skateboarding or what anything meant before that. I'd seen magazines, and I literally didn't understand how skaters got in the air above the, the vert ramps. But then I saw it, and it, it changed everything I knew about the world in, in a split second, and I was a skateboarder from that day on. I did a bunch of other stuff. I was, did pretty good in school. I, I played a bunch of sports, but all I cared about was skateboarding. Um, so that was sort of my first exposure. My, the path from there, I, I did the normal, oh, should go to college now, um, after high school and, and gotten into an engineering school in Colorado um, and realized very quickly that I didn't care at all about school. I spent all my time and every penny of, of the $50 I had a month um, on gas to drive to Denver to skate or go to the mountains to snowboard. And um, so after, after sort of three semesters, I went home and told my parents I'm not going back to school. They said, that's cool. Um, you got to pay for your life. We'll pay for your car insurance and good, good on you. Um, so I moved to California to skateboard when I was 19. I, I had gotten sponsored by New Deal at that point um, through a, a sponsor mid-video and I was on the flow team. And I didn't know anything about California except the address of New Deal. So I moved to Costa Mesa, California in 1991 um, and got a job at Pizza Hut. And that was the beginning of my real exposure to the industry. Um, eventually worked in the warehouse at New Deal. Um, they were figured out I had some computer experience and started retouching graphics and it was time to make a video. And Steve Douglas said, hey, do you want to make this video? And I said, yes, absolutely. Like, I love it. And um, that was To Deal Is Dead, and followed by the Skypager video for Underworld Element at the time. And then we had the idea to, to create 411. Um, it came out of a discussion based on um, really shitty technology. We were trying to take frame grabs from a video in 1992 and put them on, in a zine, like a Xerox zine to promote New Deal. And it was taking forever. I'd made, I had edited two videos and that was quicker than it was taking to make the scene at the time. And so we had this conversation about, well, why don't we just leave the magazine on video? And that was the beginning of Forum One and it was the beginning of me having a chance to experience the industry, um, travel the world. I turned pro for a couple of years before my third knee surgery that took care of that. Um, but I've met so many of the people in this room because of skateboarding. Um, known Paul, I've known Danny, I've known all these guys from all over the world, Lee from going to EMB in 92 and getting vibed out. So the, the thing I take away um, from all that is, is it's about the people you meet along the way. Like the journey is the destination, all those things are so very true when it comes to skateboarding. Um, we can talk about tricks we did that we remember of other people like that, that sort of built-in, um, shared heritage and culture, all those things that we've talked about a little bit. And what I realized later in my life was I wanted to spend my time and energy working on things that had value beyond just the work. So um, had a chance to work with the Smithsonian and work on this Inescape program that's been 
um, one of the most successful ways to bridge the gap between non-skaters and skateboarders in ways that are engaging and exciting and fun for everyone, regardless of how old you are, who you are, um, what you know about skateboarding or don't know, know about skateboarding. And then um, I was working for the trade association for the skateboard industry and started getting information about the Olympics from, uh, from Gary Ream. And he was the one that was, uh, had started International Skateboarding Federation, USA Skateboarding, all these things that were set up in case skateboarding went to the Olympics, not with the intention of going to the Olympics. And that was kind of the beginning of where I've wound up now. Is it, is it safe to say if Nick sees himself as at, at the bottom of the skate industry that you're somewhere near the top? I, I mean, here's, here's the interesting thing in the way that, that it's developed is that I don't, I think skateboarding is very, the industry is very separate from the Olympics and what I do. Where the opportunities are, are is where we can do things to fill those gaps. Cool. Awesome. Thank you very much to Josh. Uh, Kim Woozy, please. I, we, we've heard your, your name all week. And finally, you have a microphone in front of your face. Please. Hello. Hello. It's actually rare to not have a microphone. Um, but I just actually, before I try not to have a super long biography, I just want to um, acknowledge you all for being here and listening because our attention, for me, is our biggest currency. So how you guys are spending your attention, especially writing off that last panel, is it's literally one of the most valuable things you have. So I just appreciate that you're here and listening and like being willing to learn. Um, so for me, I grew up in the Bay Area in the suburbs. Um, my parents are from Taiwan, first generation, and I did things like, like play piano and um, kind of uniquely I got to play team sports as well um, for like being an Asian girl back then. That was pretty rare. I was like the only, I was one of the only girls and definitely the only Asian girl on my like little league uh, t-ball team. Um, so I played team sports growing up and um, my parents would were fortunate enough to take us like to Tahoe once a year to go skiing. And then I remember um, I saw snowboarding for the first time when I was like 12 and I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. And I was riding the lift with my mom and she's like, please never do that. And so of course I did it. Um, so my entry into skateboarding was actually just like, this is the coolest thing ever, riding boards. You know, how can I do this when we're not, you know, in the mountains, which is once a year. Um, and so I actually entered through like the world of longboarding and cruiser skating. Um, I had never seen any skate media, like nothing. Um, but I was super interested in just like board riding culture. I think back then it was kind of referred to. Um, and I got my hands on this magazine called SG Mag, which started out as Surfer Girl Mag, and then they evolved it to skate, snow, and surf. So it was like a dream come true. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I knew it was, you know, from Southern California. And I saw, you know, like Lacey in the magazine and Vanessa and Lindsay and Carabeth and, and Mimi. Um, and I was like, to me, it was a culture. It was always presented as a culture. It was like women and girls doing things that I didn't see anywhere else around me. Um, and I loved playing, you know, basketball and soccer and all that. But ultimately, the creativity and the, and the lifestyle and the fashion even, um, was just so different than anything I saw in living in suburbia. Um, no internet, right? Just magazines only. 
Um, so eventually I ended up going to school in San Diego kind of for that. I was like, oh, everything's down there. Like, that'd be so cool to go there. Um, so uh, senior year, I went to school for visual arts media, so video and, and film and, and um, actually kind of in a program where we were criticizing Hollywood. So it was kind of like the subculture of filmmaking. Um, and then my senior year of college, I actually ended up getting this internship out of Cyrus Shoes, which was like down the street. Um, and I didn't, I, to me, like I didn't even know what core skateboarding was. Like I never read Thrasher or anything like that growing up. Um, my access again was through women. Like the first time I saw snowboarding, there was girls snowboarding. There was women in leadership positions. Um, and so when I worked at Osiris, I was like, cool, like I'm a snowboarder. I skate a little bit, like cruiser, whatever, down the boardwalk. Um, but this idea of like this core world back then was, it was very protected and being like one of five women at the office, we were definitely on the outside of things. Um, but ultimately, um, I chose to pursue, you know, a career in the industry because I just thought it was like the coolest thing ever. I was like, this is a job? Like, this is an office? Because I had like other internships where it was like very formal. You had to like, you know, act like be on your best behavior. And I got to Osiris and everyone was just like hanging out and like shooting the shit, um, which probably doesn't say a lot because now they're out of business. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Like hanging out too much, like always skating and just like going surfing and like just, you know, kind of, it was cool though. It was like no rules, like do whatever you want. Um, so as soon as I experienced that world and I remember those were like the ASR days and it was like, this isn't, this is a trade show. Like it's a giant party. Like this is insane. Um, I knew that that was something that I was, you know, committed to forever because at the end of the day, I just wanted to find people um, to, to continue like going on trips with, like riding. And I found that in the industry and it was like, if we could like have that as our job to like, you know, go on a trip or do whatever. Um, I was like, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm in. And um, now where do you find yourself? And so now I feel like, um, my role, it's interesting. You asked if I still consider myself in the industry or not. Uh, so I did a bunch of stuff after Osiris, right? Like mafia and all these things. Um, and, you know, working with Mimi on WSA. Um, so now I actually, um, Kristen's technically my boss, but I work for, I, I direct the SF Bay Area chapter of Skate Like a Girl, and I kind of see myself as a role of like a, a liaison, I guess, between, because I have a lot of friends in the industry and like those connections and relationships were amazing, and to like bridge the gap between what I saw was a community um, that's now kind of becoming an industry, like the women's industry, um, so to play that liaison role and also bring um, just my personal skills and background into it. And I grew up playing team sports and I always had women around me, soccer team, basketball team, mentors, like lifting each other up and collaborating and like seeing who's good for this spot in this position. Um, so for me, I just try to bring, you know, what I know, uh, which is community and collaboration to, to women skateboarding. And yeah, that's, that's where I'm at today. Awesome, thank you. Uh, Paul, I know, I know you as a professional skateboarder who at some point um, transitioned out of being a full-time pro skater and now finds yourself um, doing kind of a, a very different role within the industry. Can you talk a little bit about why um, after being a pro and seeing what it's like to be a pro and being in the van and eating ramen or whatever, uh, you decided to keep going? Decided why I wanted to take care of a lot of people. Yeah. Who were, um, well, thank you everybody for coming. Uh, you know, 
I recognize a lot of people out here, and I want to thank you for having this time for us up here. Um, my name is Paul Shire. I grew up in a small town in um, the south of England called Croydon. Uh, can I just tell my story a little bit? Oh, yeah, is that by cool? all means. Hell yeah. All right. Um, I started skateboarding when I was 13 years old. Um, I was what you would call a sport billy before that. I played like every single, I was on every single team at school, cricket, field hockey, football. And uh, one day when I went to school when I was 13, there was a kid with a rubber Roscoe board and I went, ooh, what is that? And then he was like the cool kid at school. And I went over his house a couple of weeks later, we skated, and he gave me a pair of roller skates and said, oh, you should try these out. And I went, all right. So I tried to start roller skating. <laughs> and I was like, this is so whack. Can I try your skateboard anyway? So I ended up going to uh, a toy shop. You know, that's where you bought a skateboard at that time. This is 1987. Um, and they were playing Future Primitive in the window. You know, Lance Manning goes up the chimney, comes off, drops off the roof. I was like, what the fuck is this shit? Bought my toy, you know, a fluoro green board with a clown on the bottom of it. Skated out of the shopping center, almost got the board run over instantly. I almost got run over instantly because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't even know how to push on a skateboard. And uh, I went by the local spot that I, that I actually ended up spending pretty much every day of my life at for probably 15 years straight. And there was all these skaters there. And I was like, I'm not going to ever come here because I'm not going to be able to. So fast forward, I skated outside my house for probably like three years straight. I met a kid in my neighborhood, and we were the only skaters in the neighborhood. Like, they, and not that many people skated back then, you know? You were like, you had like massive jeans on, like yellow shoes on, just like people looked to you like you were like, you were dirty, you listened to heavy metal, like, you know, you were 13 and you were already too old to skateboard, you know what I mean? Um, then I ended up going back to that spot. I skated, that, that, skated there all the time. It was like, I guess, as you know, Lee Smith grew up in Barcadero, it was like that for me, you know? Like, we, we became this community, and um, I didn't get paid to skate until, sponsored to skate, until I was 21 years old. So there was this long period of time where I just, we just skated, you know? We smoked hash, we drank, like, warm beer, and we just, you know, we were just kids doing our kid thing. Um, and then it was, you know, some kids got sponsored by the shops and, you know, it was just, you weren't ever looking to get sponsored at that time, you know. Um, so, I just had a job, I sold car insurance first. Um, I delivered, like, gas cylinders, to, you know, after that in a pickup truck. And then I worked at the airport as a check-in agent. And that's when I got sponsored. When I was working from 4 a.m. to, like, 2 p.m just checking people in on their flight, you know? And uh, getting sponsored and, like, going pro went from, like, I think I was 21 when I got sponsored, and by 22, I was, like, had a pro board, and I was at a Northampton contest with, like, you know, Mike Santarosa. Like, when Mike Santarosa did the switch tray for the fun box, I mean, sure, if everyone knows their history, they remember that, right? Um, you were probably there. Yeah, um, and he went so fast, like 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 that, and then suddenly I was like, oh, I guess, I guess I'll start traveling. And then I went to San Francisco. That's where I met Lee Smith. You know, me and Embarcadero. He was him and Carl Watson were like the two guys who like went out of their way to be nice. 
I don't know if that was the same with you, but for me, you know, that's what it was for me. Um, and I've known Lee ever since, you know what I'm saying? Um, so anyway, going back to getting introduced into the industry, even then, when going to SF, I wasn't introduced to any industry, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't get introduced to the industry of skateboarding until I first went to an ASR. When I was like, what the fuck is this? Right. You know what I mean? Because, like, you just don't see that side of things growing up in England, you know? Like, I turn up and it was like when, like, Rocco had a world booth and it was, like, massive. Like, it had a big tower in it, you know what I mean? And, like, they were throwing money out, like, and, uh, you know, you know. Osiris, too, they had insane booths. And you saw, like, you know, I'm glad you were Osiris up because that, like, triggered a memory of mine of seeing, like, Dave Mayhew and Tyrone Olsen walking along with the G-bag. And I was like, I was like, I was like, this is fucking terrible. You know what I mean? But, you know, on the flip side of that, that's where I got to meet like so many people from all over, like all over the world. You know what I mean? Because that's where everyone came together at like twice a year, yeah. San Diego. Um, so that's my introduction into the skateboard industry. A strange one, yeah, it was weird for me. But then I just went back to England, and then I lived in England, went back and forth to SF, lived in Barcelona. And, uh... How about now? Where are you now? Where am I now? Now I'm in LA. I've been in LA 15 years. Um, I met my wife, the mother of my child, in Barcelona when I was drinking an excessive amount of alcohol. Just that was what that was the place I was at at that time, and um, yeah, she was she went back to LA and I went with her, and then it all started from that's when it that's when it started for me as far as like I'm gonna work within the skateboard industry. Blueprint was at the end of its journey; it got bought by someone else right. in the US. Um, they went downhill from that moment on. Um, I was earning no money, no money being a skater, you know. I went for DVS, I got a little bit of money, but there was this whole like, oh, you're from Europe, so we're gonna pay you like you'll get the fi you'll get five hundred dollars a month, right. and like people in the US are gonna get like five thousand dollars a month. And I'm not saying that I'm not on the same level as like Damon Song. I'm just saying like, growing up, that was what it was. You were like either American or you're just from somewhere else in the world, right. you know. Like you, yeah. Even with four and one, it was like, here's the rest of the world part. <laughs> I'm not like talking smack of four and one, but like from you know my side of things. Anyway. So Paul, what is your actual title right now? My title is senior manager of sports marketing for skateboarding for Adidas, and co-owner Isle Skateboards, man of many hats with that one. Yeah, hell yeah. Thank you very much. Um, all right, so we, we've got a cross section here. And, and because it's in the title of this panel, I think we should probably get right into this question of what, what core means. I'm going to throw some things out here, and uh, I would love to hear opinions about them. First of all, um, Blueprint Skateboards is, is not what it was. Nick Palomino owns a shop and can't even afford to um, be a physical space. Companies that grew up creating my entire sense of being are sh absolute shells of what they used to be. 
I thought it was P-Rod that was doing McRib things, but apparently that's Chris Cole now also. Maybe they tag team it. We have endless collaborations on our skateboards with Pikachu and various things that have nothing to do with skateboarding. And skateboarding has always used this language of what's inside, right? We've always used this kind of uh, preposition of into. You get into skateboarding, and things have tried to work their way in. Um, Josh, you spoke of bridging the gap, right? As if there's a chasm between we who skate and know what we're doing uh, and, and know what it means, and then people who are outside, right? So we have this built into our language. Um, so I guess the first question I want to throw out there is, why are we where we are that we can't even have shops anymore building the kind of community that we once did? Um, and what, what does core mean in 2019? Does it still have any use for us? Or is this a term that has kind of um, run its course, been replaced by other kind of forces in the world? Is there still core in 2019? And if so, what does it look like? And maybe, Nick, you should start. Well, I don't know if I'd call like Palomino a core skate shop. I don't really. Um, but to me, what core means is something made by a skateboarder with their own money as the, the financial backing behind it, made predominantly for other skateboarders. Um, Matt, what 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 is core now? Is the amount we've learned this week about um, the women's um, skateboard world? Like to me, at the moment, the the vast majority of that, it like that's a core scene at the moment. I I understand that that without the backing of the the big sports brands. I, I don't think it would be where it is now, which is one of the one of the huge positives that having these people involved in skateboarding have have brought to us as a community. But the the videos and the the zines and everything that I see coming from the that you see in like Skatism magazine and that that whole. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I've learned the word pronoun this week. Like I apologise if I get things wrong, but like. Um, but like the, that, the women's bi, trans, like that's underground shit at the moment. They're just like, it's just their scene that other than the people that are really, really good that are getting picked up by like people like Paula Finding and um, the guys at Vans and Nike that, that is also really pushing it. But, but the rest of it, no one cares about it at the moment. Well, not no one, but like... Not many people care about it. They're just, they're just out there doing their thing. And, and that's what it used to be like for all of us. Like, no one, no one really gave a shit about skateboard. When, when I started anyway, I understand in the history there's been like the swatch ramp and... Um, but now, like, everyone, everyone cares about us. And, um, and all these things like that's happening, like you say, with Pikachu on the bottom of a board or... White Castle or whatever it is, the the only way that that has been enabled is because skateboarders are allowing it to be happening, and a lot of the time pursuing it. Like the the one that the, the lady, I, I I don't know her name. I'm sorry, but the lady, um, a lady asked the question yesterday, and I think I'm right in saying that what she was saying was that she's 
she's not a skateboarder and she's trying to research skateboarding. And it's really hard to research it because um, nobody really wants to talk to her. It's a really closed community. Well, I, I think the reason that, it, that we have this incredible community and culture is because we've been so closed. And it is because we've been so cynical and wary and kind of like, hang on, you don't skate, but you want to talk to me about skateboarding. What's your, like, what's your angle here? What, what do you want from us? What are you trying to, what are you trying to make out of our... Um, I think that's why it's why that lady is interested in us is the very reason why it's hard for her to initially break through. I think I went off topic there, but no, I don't think you did at all. Uh, Kim, if I could, Josh, I see you want to get in, but I, I, if I could, Kim, ask you a question, please. Uh, you, you've Kim Woozy has an incredible TED talk um, that everybody should uh, load up when you leave here. And one of the things that I was sort of surprised by um, when I heard that, because I thought of you as kind of a, a growth person, like grow, 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 let's make the industry bigger, let's give more opportunities. You, you also at some point in there speak of skateboarding risking losing its soul, right? So there is a way that you continue um, to believe, it seems that there is, there is something special, there's something unique maybe that taps into this notion, if not core in name, maybe in spirit. Um, can you talk about maybe what, what that soul is to you and how it relates to this question of core, inner, outer? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I touched on this a little bit when I was kind of just given my background is that like I grew up playing team sports and, you know, with brands like Nike and Adidas and there's a lot of similarities. And yes, there's the argument of skateboarding sport, not a sport. Like personally, to me, it's a culture, not a sport. Um, but it requires like, you know, insane physical demands on your body, probably more so than some of those sports. But um I think the the aspect of it that is, you know, what makes it so special and unique is that it is, it's creative, it's a community, it's self-expression. It, you know, I think now there's these different sectors of it, but at the very beginning, it wasn't about competition. Um, it was about having fun with your friends and not having to listen to anyone tell you what to do, which is a little distinct from, you know, other traditional youth activities. Like you're in school, people are telling you what to do. Even you go to practice, your coach is telling you what to do. There's certain times you got to do it. Um, so I think for me, um, uh, core is, you know, I think it's vocabulary, but just the essence of, you know, this culture is about being yourself and not having to adhere to someone else's rules and restrictions. Um, and even just like, I always think about like, you know, having come from team sports, and I, st I still play basketball. I play in an adult women's league. Um, just think about, right, like, you're, you're, it's designed to wear what everyone else is wearing. Like, you're on a team, and you have to wear the same jersey as everyone else. Um, and I think in this, in this culture, what we see is there's, you know, like, over the years, there's tight pants, there's baggy pants, there's big shoes, there's thin shoes, like, whatever, um, different music. And I think that's what makes it special is that you can interpret it however you want um, and that, to me, is the essence of the culture that that has um, that we, I think, as those who have been in it for however long we have, um, to to carry on the specialness that that we had that you know that made it whatever made it special for you, whether you started skateboarding skateboarding last week or 20 years ago, um, to to make sure that you're you're practicing that, you're demonstrating that, you're sharing that.
Sure. Yeah. Um, thank you. Josh, you uh, were around in the foundational days, the, the 90s scene, right? The kind of glorious-ish days, golden-ish days. Um, do, you, do you get bummed out when you see someone selling a McRib? I, I'll answer that by telling you what I think about core. Great. Um, being on this panel and, and the topic, I was thinking a lot about it this week, and it's really funny to me in some ways. I mean, core has a ton of different meanings, but it's just one word. And what it really is is a marketing construct because core before companies that didn't have anything to do with skateboarding were involved meant what the industry or really what the media told you what skateboarding was. And that was this very specific thing. You do these tricks, you wear these clothes. Like core was bullshit actually in many ways. Like, you know, I talk about going to EMB when I was on New Deal. I was getting vibed until they figured out I was there with Justin Gerard. Like, oh, who's this fucking kook? Like, I don't know this dude. I've never seen him. Like that's core, right? Which is, is weird that now core can also mean, oh, well, this is the heart of the soul of all these things. Like, there's all these different meanings to core. But I think core started going away when skateboarding broke out of being this insular industry and it started becoming mainstream. Uh, mainstream in a way, when I say that word, I mean not, you weren't a skateboarder to wear skate clothes or skate shoes. And now when I go to China, I see people walking around wearing Thrasher shirts that have no idea what it even means. So the idea that core exists now, I think is, it's an antiquated notion, quite frankly. But if you take it down to what the root of it is, core means skateboarding by skateboarders. Right. And that's, that's the valuable piece of what I think core is today. Awesome. Um, so we do have a definition. I'm sorry, I'm so, so, focused here on the conversation. You can clap all you want. Um, Let's talk. We'll save the clapping yeah, yeah, for later. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I have a definition here, and it's written by a very charming young man named Max Harrison Caldwell uh, in a really wonderful magazine called Skatism. Uh, Max is a, a big fan of very good novels. Um, Core is a rejection of authorities outside of skateboarding and a reverence for those within it. It's a strict set of values, a moral and aesthetic code for skaters who want to, and this is the important part, fit into established skate culture and subsequently gatekeep it. Um, so we can't talk about core without talking about um, a kind of protectionism, right? And when I emailed all of you, I asked a question about what's a threat to the industry. Um, and wonderfully, all of you basically said, like, look, there's only, you can only t think in terms of threats if there's something you want to protect. And there's a very real question of, well, why in the world do we want to protect the way things have been? What, what is it? What is that instinct? Where does it come from? Um, Claire, I know you've spent some time uh, speaking, doing research, and thinking about this a lot. Is, is it possible that to, to maintain a kind of essence or a thought about what core is or something special without gatekeeping? Can that be done? Yeah, I think that's interesting. And also your part about, you said that was the important part at the end, but the other part that's important to me is, is about how codified skateboarding is and on paper completely opposite to your description, Kim, although it's also accurate. Um, but it's something that 
it's about being free and doing what we want, but it, there are so many rules and so many codes. And we've had discussions um, this weekend over how um, important those codes are or what they mean and what they bring to skateboarding. Um, so that, that, that's another point too. But I think, I think what's, what's great is that we give a shit. We give a shit about skateboarding. Every single person in this room is probably would describe themselves as a skateboarder before anything else. It, we're super passionate about it. And that's also why it's quite emotionally charged and what's cool, what's not cool, what's legit, what's not legit. Um, and I mean, I, I don't have an answer. I think, I think it's a positive thing that we really care and that we can use skateboarding to make skateboarding better or just to ensure that we see rad shit or to change the world, literally, as some of you are, uh, are trying to do. Um, so, but we've got to make sure that we use that as a force for good, I would say. Um, it's quite easy to just stay in your bubble and worry about our ABDs and MBDs and fucking this girl did that and this guy did this and worrying about, you know, women versus men, etc. For me, it's like this, the community is everything. My community is not women skateboarding. My community is skateboarding. I hope, I hope you guys are all my community. And... Um, and core in that sense is great. I mean, core, I don't know actually what core means, but I'd say it's the center or something. And that's great that we give a shit. But um, yeah, I think, I think gatekeeping can be positive and gatekeeping can be negative. And I, I, let, let's use it as a force for good, I would say. Very good. Thank you. Um, go I, I think that's about, like, I never heard that. Like, core being the center is, is an amazing, like, analogy or what? The, it, it can't change what it means to me, no matter, no matter what happens. So if at the center, and to, it means the same. If you're a skateboarder, it means the same to you as it means to me. Um, like, I disagree with a lot of things that people are doing, but that doesn't mean I, I um, devalue their place as a skateboarder or have any less respect for them. They're just, they're just doing something different to what I'm doing. Um, and there's this, like, the... The, the like the cliche of like there's room for everyone in skateboarding. Well, there totally is. There's like there's room for competition. There's there's room for the people that say fuck competition. Mm -hmm. That like we do, we don't um we don't have to be at odds with each other. We can just kind of leave leave each other leave each other be. Um, but the but the threat like I don't see I don't see the the Olympics as a threat to like I'm in it as I'm in, in skateboarding as a business as well. Like, I, like, the vast majority of the people that have spoken this week, it, I, I need profit. So I, I have to maintain profit to maintain my shop. Um, the, the threats to that profit aren't uh, uh, Josh in the Olympics. The, the threats to that profit aren't Paul and Adidas. The, the threats to the profit are just skateboarders. We're, it's this, it's an industry that's, that it, it, in my part of it is just run by idiots that have no idea what they're doing. Like, I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. But we're, it's really like every, all the people I've spoken to this week, which has been amazing. But the, the one little like picture, I saw a picture of, it was for something, nothing to do with skateboarding. It was a little illustration. And it's a kid and he's riding along on his bike to begin with. And then the, the next thing he's picking up a stick in the next little panel. And then the next one he's like sticking the stick in the spokes of his own front wheel. Like, that's what, 
that's what we're doing at the moment, it, as far as I can see. Thank you. Uh, so if, if, if we move out, out of this like, hyper-focused granular attention to core, I, I, we know that there's growth, right? There's at least spreading, right? I mean, wh whether the industry itself numerically is growing, um, whether people who own shops are seeing that growth. Um, Paul, I, what, I, what I loved about the way you were introducing kind of your role, um, it seemed like it started with support, right? Like, like taking care of your mace, taking care of skateboarders, making sure that skateboarders in the future don't have to work checking tickets um, if they're serious about skateboarding, that they have other sources of revenue. Um, if we get into this question of growth and exposure, um, can, can you say a little bit about what your role is uh, in terms of spreading that growth to other skaters? Like, how do you see yourself as a kind of, I mean, I keep, I just want to go like this, right? Like, is that what you're up to? Are you? It's paying the money, like, yeah. flashing my dollar around. Um, not particularly, I just, I just want to, I just want people who look good on the skateboard and like have a good attitude within skateboards, skateboarding, and I want them to be taken care of and be taken care of correctly, you know? And that goes from working at a big brand like Adidas or running a small skateboard company like Isle. Like everyone who writes for that, I need to make sure they're happy, you know? Yeah. But on the bigger scale of things, I just want people to be able to survive and be able to do what they love every day of the week for as long as they can, you know what I'm saying? Like, and as long as they're constantly doing what they're supposed to be doing and progressing, and then they're going to have a job. And it isn't like rocket science, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I have these conversations with people who are like, we'll do a demo and people won't want to skate, and I'm like, you literally got to skate for 30 minutes. Yeah. You, and it's not really that bad. You know, I mean, it helps that I've already been in that situation, you know, but yeah, I'm just trying to help people and then push good skateboarding out to the world. Is there overlap or is there a way that running a small company like Isle um, and being involved in a much larger company like Adidas, do the two inform each other? Like, have you learned things from the larger company that you've been able to bring to Isle? And is there a way that Isle has kind of infiltrated Adidas? I don't know whether Isle has infiltrated Adidas. Um, I think skateboarders have infiltrated the big brands right. from smaller brands. You know, that's, you know, but I'm saying smaller brands like Isle, but then I want to say Polar, but Polar isn't a small brand anymore. Polar's like massive. You know what I mean? Yeah. Palace is massive. They even influence these bigger brands. Yeah. The bigger brands want to do collaborations with these other brands, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I don't really have a, yeah. All right. Um, so one of the things that, that has happened here is that skateboarding has become legitimized in kind of new ways in the last kind of 10 years. Um, it seems to me that one of the kind of natural endpoints of that sort of process of becoming more legitimate is becoming, um, instead of a subculture, no matter what we want to think of it, a subculture of revolution and rebellion, um, actually becoming a, a sort of pro-social activity, like um, bicycling. So one, one question I want to throw out here to the panel is, well, what if I were to say, like, 
I don't want skateboarding to get bigger. What if I say, like, I have this nightmare situation where it's like, okay, on Tuesday I go to kickboxing, Thursday I go to yoga, and Friday there's skateboarding happy hour with margaritas with my friends, and then, you know... Um, like, Sounds like fun. It, like, <laughs> am, I, am I just being, like, a, a grumpy curmudgeon who's trying to cling to a, a nostalgia, or is... Is that the natural endpoint? Are we going to become? I think it's already gone there. It's already like it's already there. Yeah. You know, it's, but when even though it's over there, then there's still like loads of people over here too. Like you know what I mean? Whatever you want to call it, the core skaters, you know, over yeah. here. And then there's like the dad taking his kid to the skate park because he wants his kid to be in the Olympics one day. Like I just went to a skate park opening in LA recently, and. Uh, the guy who was opening the skate park said, oh, this is going to be the training ground for the next Olympians. And I'm like, eh, probably not. It's probably going to be like the training ground for like, the kids will like, you know, smoke a little weed over there and they'll <laughs> learn to do kickflips over the hip. Right. And they, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's, what, that's what it's going to be. You know, yeah, maybe one kid will end up, you know, winning the street league, might, maybe, but highly unlikely. There's only like one Niger, you know? Kim, uh, sorry, Kim, can you, uh, you both have it. Well, I, I think, it's hard because, yeah, I wasn't there in 90s skateboarding culture, right, or even 80s or whatever when it all started, but I think that the way that at least I experienced coming into it wasn't just this, I'm only a skateboarder and nothing else, and, like, I see that in our programs at Skate Like a Girl. Like, we had, we did an adult women's camp last year. That was the first time we'd ever done it. I think it was the only, like, maybe historically, I don't know, um, at least in California, and we had a mom come that dropped her kids off at school and she came to skate. And she was like, this is the only thing. She's like, I took the week off work. This is the only thing I'm doing for myself the entire year. And I mean, so I think that there are people experiencing it where that's all they're doing, you know, skate, eat, sleep, repeat. Um, and I also think there always has been people doing it um, and integrating into their life with their other other you know, hobbies, and I think, you know, if you look at, there's skaters that have been in bands, there's skaters that are artists, um, and I think on the, on the women's side, they kind of had to, like, m a lot of the girls that we were flowing in the early Osiris days were college students, because that was the only option, right? Um, so, I think at least, you know, from my perspective, it always kind of was, it wasn't ever just, I'm a skater only, and that's it. Yeah. Josh, I know you want to answer, but because I'm getting the 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 quicken up thing. I want to see if into your answer you can also talk a little bit about if we know there's going to be growth, if the industry is going to be, or if the activity is going to be legitimized, if we are going to become, um, we're going to have a firmer grounding kind of as more pro-social activities do, um, where do we then start having some of the things that more established activities and leagues have, such as protections for riders, such as perhaps unions for riders, perhaps even in a goddamn dream world, health insurance. We're, we're on our way, quite frankly. I think this, this idea and, and what Paul said, we're here. Yeah. Skateboarding, for the most part, in developed scenes is normal. I'm 47. I have a 14-year-old daughter, she skates. It's not abnormal. Yeah. Um, it's not abnormal that you have moms going to a skate camp. Like, all these things are so far outside of what the idea of core used to be. Right. Because we're all growing older, 
because there's a lot of people my age, even you know, 20 years older than me that actually inherently understand the value of skateboarding, it's not unusual. And, and that's part of what's making it seem um, different than what it used to be. But, but skateboarding's more diverse now than it's ever been. I mean, this, this event is proof positive of us heading in the right direction in terms of being inclusive as a whole to, if you love to skateboard, it doesn't matter how good you are, who you are, where you're from, what your gender or identity, anything is, it, it, it's this opportunity to do something that makes you feel good. Because skateboarding at its heart is fun and freedom of expression. Like that, that's really it. You know, we talk about culture, sport, all these different things, lifestyle, but it's really just what it is to you. Um, so on, on to this getting to the point of being able to do more normal things to support skateboarders and skateboarding. Um, the best example I have is as a national governing body for skateboarding in the United States, um, we now have very strict and defined policies on how to deal with abuse, physical, mental, any of those things that happen in a lot of these traditional sports worlds, they happen in skateboarding too. There's never been a way to deal with it in the past. It was just either those people got drummed out of the industry because what they did was heinous and the people in charge of paying them said, you get the fuck out of here, or it just got swept under the rug. Now there are, there are structures being put in place to support skateboarding in ways that never existed, um, in large part because of this Olympic inclusion, but also just because it's, being a, it's becoming a normal thing to do. And that's that path, and that's the exciting thing in terms of what I think Olympic inclusion means for skateboarding, is that we get to pull on levers we never had access to. We couldn't touch them before. But now we can say, this is kind of fucked up. Like, you need to take care of these people the way you would anyone else on this planet sure. where they weren't getting that before. Good. Um, okay, so here, here's a, a short list of things I wish we had gotten to. Um, alternative models of businesses and whether in a capitalist system we can actually form um, skate brands that are modeled differently. Um, questions of representation, not just at the kind of ground level of skaters, but actually having um, more diverse representation in the boardrooms, making the decisions, getting paid the money uh, that the few people at top get paid. Um, Maybe I'll just stop there. Uh, we're gonna shift to question and answer here. Here's what I would like to do before we go into question and answer. Two things, because this is a charged topic, I would ask that anyone who has a question, turn to the person next to you and workshop that question. And if the person says to you, yes, that is indeed a question, then raise your hand. If they say to you, if they say to you, wow, that's a really interesting statement, and I look forward to talking about it later, don't raise your hand, please. Um, the second thing I would ask is um, to have a practice here of stepping back and stepping up. If you are someone right now in this room who has the privilege of comfort, if you are vocal, if you are an outgoing person in spaces such as this, I would suggest that you consider stepping back and ceding that comfort to someone else who might need it. We've heard a lot of the similar voices asking questions this week. On the other side though, the step up side of that is, if you're someone who is less comfortable claiming space, I encourage you to step up in this moment and claim some space and make yourself heard, please, because I would like to hear you. Um, with that in mind, uh, who has questions? Fucking A, Kyle, fucking A. 
I'm running over this side because I saw that hand first. Yeah, the gray sweatshirt in the back, That's please. That's the one. Also, um, I just have a quick request. If you could just introduce yourself, and you don't have to, that I would just love to know you guys, not be a comment section, yeah. but an actual conversation. Yeah, yeah fair. Hi. Uh, so my name's Kirsty, I'm a researcher, so I'm just kind of halfway through my PhD. But there's a lot of what you're saying that's really resonating with me. But one of the things that I'm really interested in, and Kyle, you kind of mentioned this about models. So I'm really interested in um, relationships with the high-end fashion industry. So for instance, um, Golden Goose produced a uh, skate trainer, a uh, skateboard shoe, uh, la uh, two years ago that they sold for $530 and this shoe was a skateboard destructed shoe with duct tape on it. And so one of the things that I'm interested in my research is models of like how is it that the fashion, the high-end fashion industry, is able to tap into the sense of core, sell to a different audience, and what kind of models can, as an industry, can we as a skateboard industry look at to maybe tap into that audience as well uh, and bring that back to us Good. as thank a scene. Thank you. Um, is there a way to reclaim what's special about us from the fashion industry, Claire? I mean, that's marketing, basically. I'm a marketer by trade. I work in a very corporate job. Um, there's good and bad marketing. I think we had this in the earlier topic as well around um, Ted um, Schmidt. Um, you were great, thank you. You made me laugh. Um, but also you said, you said, oh, I'm sick and tired of people you know, brands talking to us and, and, you know, it's not relevant to me. That's just shit marketing. I don't think that's anything to do with, like, core skateboarding or good industry. It's just good and bad marketing. So to the point in terms of, you're like, oh, they're trying to tap in. It's shit. Like, you didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. Like, who cares? Like, some random person with too much money bought some shoes made out of duct tape. Like, I don't know. It doesn't really... I don't know if that answers the question, but I think that's just good and bad it's marketing is, like, a lot of the stuff that... Um, I personally don't really get offended about it, but I know there was a second part of your question. Maybe you it's, want to just yeah, elaborate it's not on about, it. It's not really about being offended. It's more like, um, do we feel there's a way that we can tap into that ourselves so that actually the money comes back into the stores? Is there a way okay, that we so can yeah, I've got, yeah, no, that's a good point. And develop I've got, those models. I've got, uh, yeah, so that reminds me of something I was thinking early in the week uh, when we were talking, I want to say the journalism panel, there's so many good panels, um, but just quickly, we were saying about um, basically money, like advertisers in uh, skateboard media and, and their effect, and I was thinking, well, you know, how do we feel about, um, so you're looking at an online magazine, how do we feel about taking money from outside of skateboarding to fund those banner ads no one's ever loved a banner ad. It, it could be your favorite skater. You won't even look at it. It's shit, but it's there, and it, it can make money for, for, for the media. Um, so, you know, you've got an unfortunately still very well-segmented audience looking at Jenkem or, or whoever, and there'll be males of XX ages, and they live... That's great. That's really valuable, like, audience that you have for a brand that maybe outside of skateboarding, whether it's um, whatever, Canada Goose, although I think they're a bit shit because they make things out of geese, but anyway. Um, or, um, you know, Jeep or some razor brand or something. Um, and this is a genuine question. How do, you, how do we feel about them buying some banner ad space on Jenkins? So when you go, it doesn't feel right. Some people are like, this is fucking bollocks, man. Like, fucking Jeep. Like, get out of my skateboard 
media, but maybe they'll be able to fund like really good content and we'd be able to basically use their money without really losing much other than maybe you have to, you know, view some Jeep stuff, but you have to do that anyway in life. And, you know, maybe we can take that money to, to, to fund great content. I don't know. I, I don't know if that answers your question, but maybe that's a way that we can, for, that's a very specific example, but you know. I have something quick to add to that. Um, I, I think it's happening. That's, that's my answer. It's happening. Um, I think that it brings in an audience that there's lots of girls skating for different reasons. And it's bringing in an audience that maybe wouldn't normally, you know, skate. And we're starting to see that. Um, and, you know, I remember when that started to happen. It be, it, it, first of all, I think with fashion, they're trends, right? It's trend-based. It's a cycle. So, yes, it's hot right now. It's going to change, right? So I think that if that's opening up exposure to different people that might be encouraged to try skateboarding, which I've seen it happen, like girls will come and say they saw so-and-so or whatever, um, then great. Then that's actually, that girl, if she comes to a Skate Like a Girl program or something else, maybe one of Brianna's meetups, um, she, if she likes it, she's going to continue and she's going to buy a board and shoes and whatever. Probably not those shoes because I don't think you can skate in them. Um, so I think it is happening, and um, I also think that I don't think that's a threat necessarily because I think it's it's temporary. Thank you. Um, next question, please. Maybe the gentleman from Arizona. All right, uh, just real quick, Kyle, to prove that I'm not normally someone who would ask this question, I wrote my question down word for word like a half an hour ago because I was afraid I was going to mess it up. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm from Arizona. I help run a program called Skate After School with Ryan Lay, so that's why I'm here, Kim. Um, my question is maybe for Paul specifically. I'd love to hear Kyle's thoughts and everyone else's too. But my question is, like, with the big brands, do you think that the big brands were inevitable and that, or that there was like a point where we could have possibly, skateboarding could have possibly rallied and shut them out. Um, and kind of another part to it is like, I think one of the gross things about Nike and Adidas and the big brands is they make us feel like we're lucky to have them. Like you mentioned, taking care of people, like we're lucky that they support events, support riders, all that stuff. But does it ever like bum you out or make you mad? Or do you think about the fact that like you work for a company that in a way sort of displaced you, like you worked for DVS for a while, you rode for DVS, and now you work for a company that sort of like made your position at DVS not, not possible, either directly or indirectly. I'm just wondering if it comes, comes to mind. I mean, to go, to uh, talk about me going from DVS to Adidas, working at DVS, and working under, they had new ownership too. They weren't listening to the skateboarders who worked at the brand, and they thought that they could do it themselves. They cut everybody's pay in half. Um, the shoes, you know, the quality of the shoes went down, um, and they just weren't listening to the people on the ground. So that's when I started looking, you know, into different avenues, and that's how I ended up at Adidas, because I mean, everyone who works within the skateboarding department of Adidas is like a skater, you know? So um, that to me is the most important thing for me to work alongside skaters. Yes, it's a massive corporation, 
But as long as you're working with people who understand skateboarding, understand skateboarders, and understand the, you know, what we're trying to do, then I don't see that as a bad thing for the skateboarders who I'm trying to represent. I think we, we, could, have, we could have shut them out, but we didn't. Like, that's what it really boils down to. Like, as, as a community, yeah, everyone could have rallied together, but we didn't, so. Everybody votes with their dollars. I mean, I think this is the, the point that's missing in this discussion about Nike coming in or these people coming in and taking something that was skateboarding's. It's not that. Like, the shoe companies, the insular shoe companies from skateboarding grew to a certain point where they said, our only chance for growth is to go outside of skateboarding. They pushed out first. Once they pushed that door open and said, hey, we want to be in the malls, we want to be in all these places because that's our growth path, that's when the real opportunity for the, for the sporting goods companies happen. And at the end of the day, it's just the consumers choosing what they want to wear because of whatever reason. And, you know, S comes back, people say, we want to support Core Shop. It's a bunch of shit quite frankly, because no one spends their money in those places in a way that makes a tangible difference to the industry. I mean, rewinding from that a little bit, I think the, the financial mechanics of skateboarding are set up in a way that are really hard. Like if you're a hard goods brand, running that business is incredibly hard. If you're a core skate shop that's trying to subsist on selling skateboards, it's, it's literally impossible. You have to sell shoes, you have to sell, sell apparel, you have to sell these other things that will bring in enough dollars to make a, make a business work. So these are business decisions. It's not keeping people out or inviting people in. That, those ideas, I think, don't actually make sense because it was skaters that said, damn, those Nikes are good. They last a while. And, oh, they sponsor Costin. I fucking love Eric Costin. Okay, it's, it's enough. Oh, I was just going to add to, um, yeah, I think we forget that a lot of these core skate footwear brands were going to music, MMA, like all these random places. Um, and then also, I think on, on the women's side of things, you know, for me, when I saw Nike come in, you know, and give Leticia a contract and then Lacey a contract, I was stoked because I had been in the conversations of the footwear brands that, you know, would basically say, we're not investing in that and it's never gonna happen and there's no return and she's this and that, she doesn't look this way, she's this, not this enough. Um, and here's a, for me, Nike was a company that had been supporting females, both you know in the office, right? And promoting athletes um, with real you know, actions, like writing a contract way before a lot of these um, you know, skate footwear brands had even existed. So I think for me, even my entry to sports was, you know, seeing Nike ads back in the 90s that showcased female athletes, like on TV and in magazines. I do, I do want to push on this a little, though, because there, there is a way that a lot of what we're hearing here in a place like this is runs deeply counter to the ruthless, brutal logic of capital, right? I mean, w what this answer is, more or less, is like, well... That's how the world works, right? And if you're gonna say, well, that's how the world works to a bunch of young people with dreams that may be very unrealistic about what this skateboard might do or might dream of a world that isn't so beholden to bottom lines and growth ambitions, et cetera, et cetera, 
that, that's hard, I think, for skaters in particular to hear because here is this thing that's at its core fundamentally weird, right? There, the, the activity of what we do can't actually fit into the market. What the market has done is found a way to kind of like broaden itself around the activity and kind of contain it, right? Like the metaphor I've used are hazmat gloves. Here's a, a bottom line driven company, like all companies are, putting on these hazmat gloves that are skaters who talk like skaters and know skating and love skateboarding and being like, you touch that fucking weird thing because we don't know what to do with it. So I think in a way it's, it, it is, I mean, you guys are right. You're absolutely right. This is the logic of capital. This is the outcome of capital. There's no place for people to meet up at Palomino and understand the culture of skating. And yet there is part of, I, I think I speak for some of us when I say, well, God, that fucking sucks. Um, but, but that's naive. Can I, can I just say though that in, I can only speak for, well, I can't only speak for England, but mainly for Britain. There, there are places that are physical shops where skaters can go hang out that, that are maintaining a business. That are, so it's, it's, it's not like that it, it can't happen. It still is happening, but it's just really, really difficult. I just want to add a little bit to that because I, I look at these discussions and I see Daywon Song getting taken care of in skateboarding now. And I go, no one in the industry from a shoe company took care of one of the most amazing skateboarders ever to exist on this planet until Adidas. You know what I mean? Like the, those things are, there's this huge disconnect in like standing up for what skateboarding is, but then, oh, well, you know, what Paul said, DVS, core brand, making really shitty decisions, treating people like shit, who are supposed to be the ones that are supporting you. Where you have sporting good companies paying skaters more money than they've ever made, and they deserve to make more. Like, this is the beginning of that. This isn't the end. I, 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 I understand the aversion to the capitalist system that's put us here, but we're here. And, and there's not a, a switch that you flip that changes that and we go back to skateboarding is this. Fair enough, thank you. So if I could just, to wrap up, I guess what I would like to see maybe is just the shift in thinking from us being lucky to have those brands to those brands being lucky to have our input and our people. And, and so, so but Kim, you mentioned, you, you know, yeah. you mentioned Lacey Who's and Letitia getting on Nike. It's, those brands are lucky that they've got those cool personalities to showcase. We're not like, I don't know, we're not, I would just like to see that us think about it in a little bit different way. Like they're lucky to have your input, Paul. They're yeah. not, you're not lucky to have, to help them sell things. Yeah. They're lucky to have your yeah. experience and your input. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, okay. I, I, oh. Kim, we could keep going on this forever. I do wonder if we could hit another question though. Okay. Um, because I, I want to hear from some other voices. I don't want to turn this into a, an argument between whether... Comment section? Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's, let's see if maybe there's another question that can get us can into other territory. can take it to the slap board later. <laughs> um, maybe this gentleman with the yellow shirt, kind of in the middle. Uh, yeah, I too, like, prepared a question. Um, so, yeah, over the last few days, uh, there's been broad discussion around, like, inclusivity, representation and like taking care of skaters um, and the fact that skateboarding doesn't really happen in a vacuum. Um, I think what we like need to be discussing is the fact that, that representation, inclusion, taking care of 
doesn't extend to workers across the world, uh, especially those in the global south um, who are consistently who are consistently taken advantage by big corporations. Uh, less than half a dollar on uh, wages, dangerous working conditions, long hours. I appreciate this issue is actually systemic. Um, core brands or smaller brands may also be acting in this, but big companies are maybe large contributors and it's kind of the most documented in terms of how we can uh, see that. Um, as a community and industry, importantly, can we address these issues when we aren't critical of the practices of corporations now involved in skateboarding? Thank you. Um, does anybody want to speak of conditions of production, shoes, uh, the sort of labor I, issues? I, I think the vast majority of um, companies that we would, if we're going to continue using the word core, we would consider core, are, are just as implicit as, and I'm not separating myself from this, like, are just as complicit in people being taken advantage of in the manufacturer as Adidas. Because what, what shirts are most core companies printing their logos on? It's like Gildan or Alstyle. I can't imagine the Gildan factory is a particularly lovely place to, to be employed. I've, people that know, I will have spoken to my friends within skateboarding, I will have spoken to about this a lot. It's, I, I struggle with the fact that I'm complicit in that. I'm, I'm, I'm going, well, it's happening and it's terrible, but I'm still going to sell the shirt because I like the logo and I like the, I like the people that are making those shirts. And I know that, I know that they're trying to do good things within skating, but they're still buying something that's probably made by someone that's not that have health insurance, that's not got safe working conditions. But I I, can't, I, I, I live with it somehow at the moment. I'd I'd love to I'd love to get rid of all of that stuff out of the shop. But if I did, I wouldn't have a business. And at the moment, I've made my moral choice to continue selling that, which I struggle with. But it's like that's the honest. I'm doing it, so I can't deny it. Um, something that I was talking to you, Kyle, about just right before is I think the next step, the future, right? And based on everything we've seen here this week is, you know, given that this is such a passionate community and we are, we have been people who advocate for things since day one, I think the future of this community is actually in politics. Like I was talking to Tommy about this yesterday. Um, I have a friend who's a pro surfer, shout out to Corey Schumacher, that's now on city council in Carlsbad. And she's in there, you know, working on, you know, policy change. Um, and I'm, like, wanting to, like, kind of invite our community as we grow up. We have these insanely smart professors and researchers um, to venture into that, that you know, sector um, and, and take on, you know, these, these systemic issues that we're, you know, kind of concerned about and sort of at the effect of, so. Good. I, just just to add on to that a little bit, I think that what's interesting about young skateboarders in particular is they're the most um, civically involved group of young people in the U.S. in anything, and it relates to skate park advocacy. There's no other time you're going to find a bunch of kids getting together and going to city council meetings to talk about something they love and, and I think that you're right, like the opportunity to harness those things that exist in skateboarding 
to make the world a better place totally exists. I, I talk about this a lot in, in the Olympic stuff. Um, we, we see the Olympics and this exposure and all these things from this viewpoint, you know, mainly an American or Eurocentric viewpoint, but what we don't realize is that skateboarding in the Olympics means that governments around the world are funding skateboarding activities. That's how sport is funded in the, the vast majority of the world is through government. So now there's being money being spent to create more skateboarders, which will inherently make the world a better place. And it, it's using this passion for what we love to do the things that we care about that, that will make a difference in the future for all of us. Thank you. Uh, do we have time for one more? One. I see one. Um, let's go right down front here, please. It's coming behind. Hi, hello. My name is Austin. I'm from China. I did my PhD in Chinese skateboarding. Great. And um, I. I, I, I do actually have a more like a comment than the, the question. I've been just reflecting on this and hopefully hopefully this can I can get some response from you guys as well. So I've just been thinking that we have talked a lot about what's core. I think it's more important now is not not saying that we don't have this core thing anymore. It's to redefine it. And so that's the reason, partly reason why I don't disagree, uh, I, I don't agree with uh, calling that we, in skateboarding community, we don't have this core anymore, or we, we call skateboarding a culture rather than a subculture anymore. I think it's very important that, that we do, uh, do redefine the meaning of sub, which to me, I mean subversive. Skateboarding is very subversive in a progressive sense. Uh, so we don't go into Olympics, then we become football. We are still skateboarding. We still have this like different scores in the system. We have a very different way of uh, competition, and we don't become we don't put the press tag on skateboarders just like other sport companies did to football players, uh, just because Adidas came into the skateboarding industry. So we're actually very subversive. We, we introduce this idea of support. In companies like Adidas and Nike, we introduce this idea of style in Olympics. Uh, so I think it's very important that we don't confuse this subversiveness in skateboarding with hedonistic lifestyles or the street yeah. styles. Uh, so I, yeah, just that's my thought I want to share. Thank you Thank for you. that. And maybe, maybe what I could do is as our kind of ending, hand uh, the mic back to Paul. If you want to speak, uh, uh, because I cut you off a second ago, um, the idea here that maybe there is something being gained, right? I mean, maybe we can end this conversation if you want to speak at all about the sort of things that have been gained, uh, as you see it, for skateboarding from your particular view in the industry. Um, well, This is kind of going back to over there, uh, to uh, Tim over here. Um, you know, there's been a lot. You know, there's been a lot of talk. You know, women skateboarding on this, but there hasn't been any talk on visually impaired skateboarders or skateboarders who, you know, they have no legs. Um, that hasn't been talked about at all over the past few days. I, I did notice that. Um, so I just want to get to that and uh, talk about something that, like, we're trying to do because we work with a blind skater, Dan Mancina. This is where I'm trying to grow skateboarding into another whole nother realm into because uh, I noticed in the X Games they had um, adaptive. adaptive skateboard contest for bowl and uh, 
Dan Mancina, who we sponsor, hit me up and he says, oh, why wasn't I invited to that? Why wasn't I invited to that? I didn't hear about it. I didn't know about it, you know? Um, but what we're working on now is we're trying to work with Dan to build a blind skate park for blind people. Working with him, this is where I was trying to go with you, you know, like, he's not lucky to have us, we're lucky to have him, and we're lucky to be able to introduce skateboarding to a whole generation of people who would never, ever have thought they could skate. Right. We did blind, blind camps for skaters. We introduced skateboarding to, like, 15 blind kids. You know, Dan taught, taught it. He's done two camps now, and we're working with him for that. Um, and I believe that not just visually impaired uh, people, we're going from, like, kids to, like, adults. Um, but we need to introduce skateboarding to that bigger, on a bigger scale to, you know, people who would never think that they could even dream of something like that. Like, when you see Dan Mancina skate, he cannot see anything, you know? And he can, you know, he could ollie these stairs right here. It's, it's insane, you know? And watching him work with, like, kids and seeing a kid's face who's never rode a skateboard because, well, if I was blind, I would never think about that that would be a thing that I could ever do. Yeah. But helping someone like Dan and, like, the visually impaired community build a skate park where, like, you change the ground where the stairs start, so you change the ground where the, you know, or, like, you get a wind tunnel that, like, hits you with the wind when you're just going to go up a ramp, like, all this type of stuff, like, I don't know. That's what, that to me is why I do my job, because of people like Dan, you know? Like, I want, I want to represent people like him. And, that, and a big brand like Adidas, they can do that, and they'll listen to me, you know? I'll bring it to them, and they'll listen to me, and then we'll do it, and we're going to, you know... So, yeah, it's a big, big corporation, but, you know, they, they help me be able to make something come true, you know, come true, I guess, you know, like, yeah, yeah does that make sense? I think that, I think that does make sense. I think that makes a whole lot of sense. I think uh, it's probably as, as as uh, important of a note to end on as any. So if we could please give one more round of applause to Nick and Claire and Josh Woo! and Kim and Paul. Yeah. And give it up for Carl Beachy as well. Your paddle. Phil, can I just say, it's not like, um, I'm not particularly great at speaking to people that I don't know. So if there's anyone here that I don't know already that, that make zines or videos or just come and talk to me because if I don't know you, I want to know you and, and like talk about getting your stuff into the shop. And, and also the, the girl, if the woman, if she's still here that was researching drag and skateboarding, come and see me because I've got a zine in the shop that covers drag and skateboarding. So. Hey. Um, and you've basically summed up what Pushing Borders is like talk to each other. This is the beginning of the conversation, not the end. And it's also an invitation to act on those conversations. Like we are all, it, all of you could be panelists. Like that's the feeling I've been getting over the four days. Like everybody's got a story, everybody's doing stuff. So uh, this is the beginning. So uh, please act on it and meet each other and, and share those stories and share those amazing things that you're doing. Um, to that end, we are going to just finish on like a little group photo. So uh, firstly, thank you for being here and that's Richard Borders. <laughs> <laughs>